History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 404th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, da 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 da, I feel like we should have a big production number. <laughs> Walt Disney World. Woohoo! This one has been on the list for a while. We always kind of put it on the back burner, especially when I had my ex-wife was my co-host because she worked there and we didn't want to cause any issues with her workplace and that kind of right. thing. No stepping on toes. But but now we don't have to worry about stepping on any toes. And it just so happens that Walt Disney World, specifically the Magic Kingdom, is turning 50 tomorrow. That is amazing. It is. It's almost as amazing as me turning 50 a few days later. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about some of the legends and haunts connected to Walt Disney World. This was suggested to us by Josie from Germany. So even though it's been on the list for a while and backburnered, she managed to pull it to the front. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Gloria, Teresa with no H, Kevin, Alice, Julie, Pamela, Polly, Jay, Diana with two N's, Deborah, Aaron, who spells his name with an E-R-O-N, Lisa, Ashley, Becky Ann, who spells her Becky with an I and an E, and Kelly, we got to meet in person some spectacular people, or should I say spooktacular people, (laughs) at our live show. We already were friends with Amanda and Logan, but it was so neat to get to see them face to face. Absolutely. It was a blast. So Amanda has joined us here in the Spooktacular crew. We look forward to hanging out with you guys. I mean, they only live a few miles away from us, so we got to do some local stuff. Definitely. And also Bailey, you know, we got to see her in person. So definitely going to organize something where we can all get together and do some investigating. Amen. We also met Debbie, who spells her name with an I and an E. She sat across from us at our, I guess you'd say, late lunch, early dinner at the haunted restaurant Harry's. And I told her she's one of the cutest people I've ever met. She is so adorable. Such a Southern belle. I was like, she is from Alabama, Southern charm all the way. Definitely. And then there was Robin and her daughter. Yes, they came all the way from Texas, I believe, right? They did. The person who came the furthest was from Seattle, though. I know. Very cool. Wow. That is a long way to travel to hang out with us. Robin and Debbie also did the ghost hunt with us at the St. Augustine Lighthouse. They sure did. We did get some activity going on there. I think we're going to put together our evidence in a bonus episode for October to get you all ready for Halloween because we've covered the St. Augustine Lighthouse a couple of times already. So we don't want to get redundant with it, but it might be a nice little bonus for everybody. Sure. And to clarify, it's not a bonus cast like we have behind the Patreon wall. No, this will be on the free feed. Welcome to the crew, everyone. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. And warning for little ears, we will be talking about reproduction. Many times people refer to reproduction as the birds and the bees. After learning about honeybee reproduction, we're not sure we should actually do that, especially when it comes to males. When it comes to bees, the only ones getting action are the drones and the queen bee. Around seven days after the incubation of a queen bee, she will fly outside of the hive and have a little party with around 12 drone bees. This little party takes place mid-air in moderate temperatures around 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius. The drone reverses his equipment so that it sticks out of his body, and he contracts his abdominal muscles to send out his message to the queen bee. 
Then that part of his body gets cut off and remains inside the queen bee, and he, well, dies. See? We said this wasn't pleasant for the guys. The next drone comes along and does the same thing after removing the remnants of the previous drone. This mating ritual lasts around 20 minutes, and the queen stores all of that spermatozoa in her body, which is around 7 million. We're not sure who counted all that. She stores that for her entire life, deciding which egg she'll fertilize. The fertilized ones become female, while the unfertilized become drones. The females become either queens or worker bees. And that determination comes through the feeding of royal jelly, which helps a queen bee to grow. While bee reproduction is fascinating, if not a tad dangerous, it certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. month of September on the 24th in 1902, Fanny Farmer opens a cooking school. Farmer was born in 1857 to a family who believed in women being educated. Unfortunately, her education was delayed by a stroke that left her disabled. In her early 30s, she attended the Boston Cooking School. This was a school that aimed to teach women how to teach cooking so they could become teachers, and Farmer eventually became its principal. She published her first cookbook in 1896. This book would revolutionize American cooking through a number of topics like sanitation techniques, nutrition, and using precise measurements, which was a novel culinary concept at the time. Farmer left the Boston School in 1902 and opened Farmer's School of Cookery. She had such an expertise in nutrition that she lectured at Harvard Medical School about nutrition for specific diseases and nutrition for children. Farmer died in 1915 at the age of 57, but the Fanny Farmer cookbook is still in print today. As Diane said, Walt Disney World is celebrating its 50th anniversary in October of 2021. This incomparable theme park is exactly what its name describes, a complete world that was the ultimate vision of Walt Disney. Walt Disney World covers a full 27,000 acres and features four theme parks, two water parks, a shopping district, and 31 resorts, plus its own public works district. There is so much to see and do here, but even better, there are many legends and ghosts on this property. Join us as we share the history and haunts of Walt Disney World. Kelly, Disney has been a big part of both of our lives. Both of us were born in California and grew up with the original theme park of Disneyland. I remember my first times going there. As do I. I loved the e-ticket rides when I was big enough to use them. Yes, and I remember (laughs) when my parents would tell us, we're going to go to Disneyland tomorrow, and I would just lay in bed so excited in the morning that we were going to go to Disneyland. I used to have a repetitive dream where I was hanging out on a nightly basis almost with the bears from Country Bear Jamboree. I'm not even kidding. You know, when I go back through some of the old photo books that my mom has, there's some creep factor in there because the (laughs) character costumes that they had back in the day are definitely not like they are today. Yes, most definitely not. I mean, you've got the three little pigs and they almost seem like it's just a regular person dressed up in their clothes. There's not a whole lot of padding to it. And then they have these big pig heads on. (laughs) I know. It's like, okay, just a little creepy. I bet you grew up watching The Wonderful World of Disney. I sure did. It was a staple in our house every Sunday night, and then we watched the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom afterward. (laughs) As did I. (laughs) Such a great time. They don't do stuff like that nowadays, because now you got a million channels you can watch. But when you only had so many choices, it was a, a really neat family time. And as adults, we have enjoyed Walt Disney World. 
the first time I visited Walt Disney World, I was 16, and my best friend in high school, her family would come out here every year as a family and do a little trip in September, kind of right after school had started, before it got to be winter yet, and her sister couldn't go the one year, and so she was like, my parents said, we got plane tickets, we've got the hotel, all you got to do is bring souvenir money, and I was like, okay. (laughs) And it was the start of something amazing for me because I'd never been to Florida before. And we flew into Florida and I looked down and I went, oh, my gosh, look at all that water, which I love. And of course, I love humid, tropic kind of weather. And greenery galore. Mm -hmm. So I already was like, I love Florida. And then we went to the Magic Kingdom and Epcot, which were the only things that were open at that time. They didn't have the other two parks yet. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. The 3D that they had back then was so innovative. And I just fell in love with the place. And I'm like, I'm going back there over and over again. So it became a place that every time we had a chance to go on vacation uh, in my previous marriage, we would go. uh, We honeymoon there. And it was just a place that was very special. And then I got you to come. (laughs) You sure did. And I think you fall in love with that, too. Oh, absolutely. I love it there. And there's so much more to see and do, not knocking Disneyland, because, of course, that and California Adventures, they only had so big of a footprint to work with for the parks. But I just was, well, you saw my jaw drop on many occasions when I first was exploring the parks here. Well, I think it was shocking to you when we started driving down the roads that are the Disney roads and you're looking at the street signs going, they're purple. How can they have purple and stuff? And not only that, but they have their own freeway running through between all the parks. (laughs) Yes. And a lot of people don't realize. I mean, when you come down here, it is its own community, city, everything. In episode 44, we featured Haunted Disneyland and covered the biography of Walt Disney for that. So we don't want to repeat that information here. It'd get a little redundant for you guys. So if you have not listened to episode 44, we encourage you to do that because it would go perfectly with this one. Walt was a visionary, and while he loved Disneyland, he was deeply unsatisfied. His vision of a theme park was so much bigger. He needed a space where he could stretch out his creative genius. He found that space in Bay Lake, Florida, which is today Lake Buena Vista. There were huge swaths of land available on the cheap because much of it was considered swampland. With his popularity, Walt knew that if anyone knew he was the one purchasing the land, the price would go up. So a cover name was used, Robert Price, and several dummy corporations were started as well. In 1964, 12,400 acres were purchased from three Orlando home builders for $145 per acre. Steal. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) When Disney was done buying, they had spent $5 million on 27,443 acres. And we have walked a lot of that. We certainly have. (laughs) Speculation began throughout the Florida press that the mysterious industry coming to Orlando was headed by the Disney Company and that possibly there was going to be an East Coast Disneyland. By November of 1965, it was no longer speculation because Walt and Roy Disney announced their plans for a new theme park near Orlando. Walt dubbed this the Florida Project, and he shared his vision in a film he made shortly before his death. The core of this project was to be the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, or Epcot, which was a utopian community. Tragedy struck in December of 1966, however, when Walt died. Roy announced that plans were still going forward and that now the new park would carry his brother's name, which was they were only going to call it Disney World, but he said, we're going to call it Walt Disney World. I want his name on there. But plans to run a city of tomorrow were abandoned, so that whole utopian community They never did that. Celebration here in Florida was originally started by Disney, and that's kind of what they were going to do is build their own community. It was very different than the Epcot that Walt Disney had envisioned. I mean, he he really saw this futuristic landscape, and as Celebration, really, it's just a really expensive place to live, and it has a lot of shops with people that can live above them and stuff. I, I didn't see anything that made it really special as compared to other places. The Reedy Creek Improvement District was approved by the Florida legislature in May of 1967, and this gives Disney something unique, their own independent municipality. So when I said it's like its own city, it literally is its own city. It maintains its own roads and everything. Walt Disney World even has its own post office and zip code. On May 30th, 1967, ground was broken on the new park, and the plans were ambitious. Many of the restaurants and rides that are at the Magic Kingdom have been there for the past 50 years and were the same rides as the ones at Disneyland. It's a small world, Pirates of the Caribbean, 
Haunted Mansion, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, Space Mountain, and the Railroad, to name a few. The castle that anchors the wheel with spokes leading to various lands was called Cinderella's Castle and is much bigger than Sleeping Beauty's Castle at Disneyland. A bigger monorail system was incorporated into this park and parking was set up at a separate area so that the Magic Kingdom was set back and needed to be traveled to via other means, which would be either the monorail or the ferry. And the thing that really makes the monorail different here is it really is a piece of transportation here, like the bus system and everything. Whereas if I'm remembering correctly, Disneyland, it's always just been kind of like its own ride, but it doesn't really take you to and from a lot of places. Yeah, it's pretty much, if I remember correctly, just out and back. I can't even remember for years and years ever having been on it. I believe it just basically goes out to the downtown Disney area and then into the park. Yeah, I remember, I think the last time we were there, which was many years ago, we did hop on it just to ride it because it's kind of cool when it goes by California Adventure. It's like you go across the San Francisco Bridge or something, it seemed like. But yeah, I was like, this is basically a ride. I'm like it. Walt Disney World, you can't get over to the Magic Kingdom without riding the monorail unless you jump on the ferry boat. Has to get you from A to B. Exactly. The Magic Kingdom opened on October 1st, 1971 and charged $3.50 admission for adults. Today, it costs around $120 for a day pass to one park. Yeah, that's not even with your park hopper. If you throw the park hopper on there, it could be about $140. A little bit of inflation. Yeah, a little, little change. Over 10,000 people were in attendance on that first day to enjoy the seven themed areas, which were Main Street, Adventureland, Bear Country, Fantasyland, Frontierland, Liberty Square, and Tomorrowland. Bear Country no longer exists. Along with the Magic Kingdom opening that day, the Contemporary Resort and Polynesian Village Resort both also opened. Not all rides were ready to go that first day. Peter Pan's flight wouldn't open until October 3rd, and as if perfectly planned just for Diane... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea opened on October 14th. And I love 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It just gives me that whole steampunk feel. Absolutely. (laughs) Unfortunately, it no longer exists either. A grand opening special ran on NBC at the end of the month and had 52 million people tune into the show. An end of an era would come when Roy Disney died less than three months after the opening. And such a bummer. Walt never got to see it. And Roy barely got to see it. Right. Finished. Plans to expand the world continued with Epcot Center being the next focus. And that's how it started off. It was called Epcot Center, and now it's just called Epcot. This was a unique theme park split into two sections. The first was Future World and focused on technology, education, and human achievement, while the second was called World Showcase and had various pavilions representing countries from around the world. Many people don't know that the reason there are two radically different parts to Epcot is that Imagineers couldn't agree on what the park should focus on so they combine them. Some of them said, we want it to be like a World's Fair. Let's do a World Showcase. The other ones were like, no, this should be about the future and innovation and technology and everything. And I guess they just kept butting heads and said, well, why can't we do both? So they did. And they open at different times. The future world opens up first thing in the morning, but you got to wait until 11 for the World Showcase to open up. True. And that's where a lot of people go to drink around the world. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) And I don't know how they do it because there's a lot of countries there. I'd get about halfway through and I would not be able to walk anymore. (laughs) This park was anchored by a giant geodesic sphere that holds the spaceship Earth ride inside of it. And there were six pavilions that grew to nine. Epcot opened on October 1st, 1982. So it opened on the same day as Magic Kingdom 11 years later. One of the difficulties for Epcot would prove to be that innovation moved too fast for it to keep up, and many concepts have changed over the years with a major current revamp going on right now. We have no idea what this place is going to look like when they're done, but they are demolishing, crushing, clearing out all kinds of buildings there. We went into, I think it's called the Odyssey Center, and they have like a film in there showing you what they're going to do. It's going to have a lot of changes. I just keep hearing, it's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. (laughs) going through my head. (laughs) The park will literally be transformed into something fairly new on the future world side with it being divided into three worlds. Various festivals have been introduced over the years to keep the park popular, like the International Flower and Garden Festival and the International Food and Wine Festival, which we enjoy munching our way around the world for that. (laughs) We do. And I'm going to be doing the 10K for that festival, the Food and Wine Festival, in November. You certainly are. And what pulled me in, because run Disney events are quite expensive, but when I saw what the medals look like, you sent them to me. 
I, text me I or sent something. you a picture and you said, oh, it's too expensive. And I said, well, happy additional birthday or early <laughs> Christmas or something. And then I thought, well, with it being in November, there's no way because it used to be in order to get into a run Disney event, you had to be on the computer like the moment those things dropped and get it. And I'm like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to get that. And it was open. I was like, hot diggity. So hopefully Sign I'll, have, me up. <laughs> I'll have a very cool shirt and medal. The third park to open at the world was Disney's MGM Studios that later changed its name to Disney's Hollywood Studios. This park was the brainchild of Marty Sklar and Randy Bright. The park opened on May 1st, 1989 and has gone through many changes through the years, with the biggest update being Star Wars Galaxy Edge. The part we love about the park is its nod to old Hollywood from the Golden Age. Originally, this was a working production facility with a backlot, but sections of this closed over the years and no longer exist. The anchor to this park had been the Earful Tower, like the Eiffel Tower, but with ears. Yes, at first you thought that was a bit of a typo. That's correct. But no, it's (laughs) Earful, and actually it no longer exists. They tore it down when they put in Star Wars. I mean, I love Star Wars, but they took away a lot of things that I absolutely loved about this park. That's one of them. But we do have a lamp in our master bedroom. That is the Earful Tower. So we'll always have a little piece of it. Perfect. And then the Sorcerer's Hat, which was removed a few years ago, thankfully, as it obstructed the view of the Grauman's Chinese Theater replica. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to have this giant Sorcerer's Hat right there in the middle of the park when you came into the center. But if you want to take a picture of the Grauman's Chinese Theater, you couldn't because it was just right there in front of it. Only two rides were running when this park first opened. But many have been added through the years and there were seven themed areas. The Streets of America was a replica of a New York street, but was demolished to make way for Star Wars. This also killed the Osborne Festival of Lights that ran during the Christmas season. Which I'm so bummed you never got to see in person. I know, but thankfully YouTube still lets it share. Yeah, and I have a couple videos that I put up on my page too, but that was so much fun to go down there and be walking around in shorts and t-shirt while it snowed on you and watching all the Christmas (laughs) lights and sipping on hot cocoa and I'm going to miss that. And Toy Story Land has also been added. Which is really cool. I do like Toy Story Land. It's very fun. The fourth park would be Disney's Animal Kingdom that opened on April 22nd, 1998. This is like a large zoo with rides and takes up the most acreage of all the parks. This was the brainchild of Imagineer Joe Rode or Rode. I'm not exactly sure how to say his last name. It's R-O-H-D-E. Over 2,600 workers constructed the areas for the animals from shelters to planting trees and Zulu crafters from South Africa made the thatched roofs for the buildings. Disney hired staff from 69 different zoos to oversee care of their animals. There's a safari that guests can ride on to see animals in their natural habitat, and several trails to hike to see animals as well. Discovery Island is the central part of the park and feeds into Asia, Africa, Dinoland, and Pandora, the world of Avatar, that was added in 2017. And this is anchored by the giant Tree of Life. And it has like over, I think, 300 different animals carved into its trunk. It's a lot of fun to walk all around it and see what kind of animals you can see. And there are hundreds of hand-placed leaves on it that were, it's not a real tree, obviously, but all of those leaves were put on by hand. It's absolutely breathtaking. It really is. Disney obviously doesn't like to talk about deaths at any of their parks, but they have happened over the years. Some employees have been killed while working rides. Once upon a time, there was a Skyway that took guests from Fantasyland to Tomorrowland aboard colorful Skyway cars. There was a Skyway in Disneyland too, wasn't there? Yes, there was. And it actually used to go, if I remember correctly, I thought it used to go through the hole on the Matterhorn. Oh, you know what? I think you're right. Yeah. It's and been years, see... but I think you're right. Yeah, you could see the cars racing by. Yeah. This ride was a part of the Magic Kingdom from opening day until 1999. The Tangled restrooms now sit where the ride used to board in Fantasyland. Raymond Barlow was a 65-year-old custodian cast member at the Magic Kingdom, and one morning before opening, he was cleaning the Skyway when it started up and a car pulled him from the platform. He clung to the car until he was over a flower bed, but the 40-foot fall still killed him. This happened in 1999, and Disney was fined $4,500 for the serious violation of safety standards. The Skyway closed several months later. Diane remembers in 2009 when cast member Austin Winnenberg was killed in the early morning hours driving the monorail. Two of the trains collided with each other. 
two cast members have died at the Primeval Whirl Ride in Animal Kingdom. One in 2007, her name was Karen Price, and another in 2011, who was Russell Sherry Roscoe. And some guests have passed away, like a great-grandmother who had a heart attack when a snake dropped out of a tree onto her grandson and bit him. And this was uh, Florida. We have snakes here. They do get into Disney, obviously. It was not a poisonous snake, but it was so traumatic for her that she had a heart attack. And many people probably recall the tragic loss of a toddler at the Polynesian Village Resort who was attacked by an alligator resulting in big changes with signage and access to water all around the parks and resorts. So now anywhere you go that there's water, there's a sign like every six feet letting you know there are alligators and snakes here. Stay away. You used to be able to kind of wade in the water in some of the areas. Now it's like kind of gated off and there's rocks there. They make sure that you can't even get near the water anymore. Other guests have had medical conditions aggravated by rides that cause them to have heart attacks, strokes, seizures, that kind of thing. Some of these deaths have led to hauntings. We need to emphasize that when it comes to ghosts at Walt Disney World, there are many legends with not much evidence, but they're still fun to share. And also, Kelly, a lot of people may not think about this, but for a lot of Make-A-Wish or that kind of charity, this is obviously a dying wish for a lot of people, and sometimes they're pretty close to death when they get here. So they have had people die at the resorts who this is where they wanted to come to die. The Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Disney's Hollywood Studios opened in 1994. This is an accelerated drop tower dark ride with great theming based on Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. This is the second tallest attraction at Walt Disney World. And for people who want to know the first, Expedition Everest is the tallest. A ghost has been seen walking around the attraction during off hours and does not respond to cast members calling out to him and eventually vanishes. Some stories claim that he's wearing a bellhop costume, so perhaps a former cast member. There are many interesting artifacts and props as a part of the theming, giving the hotel a really creepy feel. I just love this ride, not just because it's fun and exhilarating to go on it. Old Hollywood. I'm always like, I hope we have to stand and wait a little bit because I just love to walk into the lobby of the old Hollywood hotel there and just look at all the stuff they have everywhere. I just love it. There is the devil fortune telling machine from the episode Nick of Time starring William Shatner. One of the teeny tiny attackers from the episode The Invaders, starring Agnes Moorhead, is on a shelf. This episode had a great twist in the end when we discover that the tiny invaders are actually humans visiting a planet of giants, and Agnes is one of those giants. But one of these props is really creepy. Caesar is a ventriloquist doll from the Twilight Zone episode entitled Caesar and Me. In this episode, Caesar manipulates his owner, Jonathan West. The actual Caesar now sits among the dusty collection of oddities in the basement, and he carries some bad luck with him. If cast members working the ride do not say hello and goodnight to Caesar every day, they have trouble with the attraction. So now every time I hear that the attraction is down, I'm going to be like, oh man, who didn't say good morning, Caesar? And speaking of creepy dolls, Liberty Square has an old doll that occasionally peeks out from the window of one of the stores. We're going to have to look for this too. I don't know if it's still there, but... Now, some people may be unaware that Liberty Square is meant to model a real colonial square complete with a river of poo (laughs) running through it. So I don't know how many people know, but when you are walking around and you see that it's kind of that reddish clay is what they have mostly on the ground. And then all of a sudden you see this like winding, thinner, brown, rocky kind of path. I don't know that everybody who is there knows that that winding path is really supposed to represent a river of poo because that's what you would have had in colonial times as everybody dumped their chamber pots into the street and let it run down to the river. Loverly. (laughs) I learned that on one of those back tour, back scene tours or something. And it ain't Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not Winnie the Pooh. This doll is a nod to another tradition of colonial times in which dolls were placed in windows to let firefighters know that a child was inside the house. Did you know that? I did not. But what Mm. if the child had taken the doll to play with? Oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Or poo. (laughs) There is also a fireman's brigade crest on the building that contains the doll that lets firemen know that the family donated to their cause. So I'm like, does that make it whether they're going to risk their lives or not? Oh, hey, guys, they gave us some money. Yeah, we'll try to get them out of there. Oh, this family didn't give us money? Burn! You're terrible. (laughs) This doll is said to move about on its own, according to cast members. 
She may appear in a different window or be found sitting somewhere that is not where she's normally kept. And who knows, it could be cast members playing with each other, but... Can anyone say Annabelle or Robert or... (laughs) Say, you know, we know it happens, so I can believe it. Across from Liberty Square is Tom Sawyer's Island, and it definitely has some creepy caves over there to explore. There are those who claim to see shadow figures in those caves that are not coming from humans. The man who made sure that his brother's vision came to fruition, Roy Disney, has been spotted hanging out on Main Street particularly when it is time for fireworks, and he looks like he's watching the show in the sky. Epcot's spaceship Earth takes riders through time and the history of communication with lots of animatronics. There are two spirits that are thought to haunt this ride. These are a little boy and a little blonde girl, and they are seen both outside of the ride near the entrance and riding on the ride. In either case, they disappear, which is how people know that they are not human. Kelly, one of our favorite rides is Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, I think the one at Disneyland is far superior to the one here because it's longer. But I like everything with the queue for the one here. Yeah, the queue here is definitely better because basically Disneyland, it's just kind of outside, right? You're just winding around outside. So it is better here, but I just like that it's longer there. It seems like you're going through the cave system longer. You've got that skeleton that's in the bed. And it used to be that there were real bones that were above his head on the headboard. That's why they thought there were some hauntings going on there. Oh, and they have two drops at Disneyland, whereas here at Walt Disney World, we just have the one, although I think it's a longer drop. It is a longer drop. Pirates of the Caribbean first opened at Disneyland on March 18th, 1967. This was originally meant to be a walkthrough ride that featured wax figures. When the rides It's a Small World and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln turned out to be huge hits, it was decided to use audio animatronics for the pirates rather than wax figures. And also because of how well the track worked for It's a Small World, that's when they decided to make it a boat ride, too, then, instead of a walkthrough. The Haunted Mansion was supposed to be a walkthrough, too. They had a lot of walkthrough ideas. It's a special ride, not just because it has these glorious animatronic pirates, but this was the last attraction that Walt had his hands all over. He never got to see the final product on this side of life, but Imagineers did push him through the ride on a chair rigged to a dolly. Imagineers who worked on the creation of the ride were Mark Davis, Francis Xavier Atencio, also known as X, Claude Coates, Yale Gracie, and Blaine Gibson. X wrote the lyrics for Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. He also wrote Grim Grinning Ghosts, so boy do we appreciate him. Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. You're not going to sing with me? The Pirates of the Caribbean ride at the Magic Kingdom opened in 1973. The reason it was not there for the opening was because the company thought that the mystique of the ride would not be there since Florida is so close to the Caribbean. But visitors were vocal about their disapproval of that decision, and we are glad that they did. Guests enter the ride through a Spanish-style fort named Castillo del Moro, inspired by a fort in Puerto Rico. The one at Disneyland is haunted, and so is this one at Walt Disney World. There are several ghosts here. The first two seem more of a legend because a story connected to them claims that these are two women who died on the ride when the boat derailed during the drop. This accident never happened, but people do claim to see them on the ride, and cast members sometimes see them on the security monitors. One lady is described as being wire-haired. Yeah, I I don't know if her hair is sticking out all over the place, but they just called her the wire-haired lady. Okay, I hope I'm never referred to that way. (laughs) George is the most famous ghost at the ride. Legend claims that this is the spirit of a construction worker who fell and died while building the ride. Now, whenever the ride has any mechanical issues, George is blamed. To appease George, cast members always make sure to say good morning and good night to George. If someone says that they don't believe in George, he will stop the ride. Most cast members agree that George hasn't interacted with anyone since 2005. Some people think that there was a particular part of the ride that used to break down all the time and that they finally fixed whatever that issue was in 2005 so it doesn't happen. So now they don't blame George for it. I'm not sure. But uh, maybe we should be like, hey, George, are you out there when we're riding it sometime and see what happens? I'm down. I would have to say this might be our favorite ride out of all of the parks. When When hinges creak in doorless chambers and and strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls. Whenever candlelights flicker where the air is deathly still, that is the time when ghosts are present, practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. 
So, of course, our favorite ride at the Magic Kingdom is the Haunted Mansion. We're not going to talk about the history of this attraction on this episode. Rather, we're going to cover that as part of our Halloween episode this year. Every year, you know, I try to come up with a theme. We've done several parts of Halloween and its history. I think we've covered everything you can possibly do about Halloween. So make sure you listen to all of our Halloween specials for that. Then we did Haunted Attractions, the history of those. Last year, we did Horror Hosts. And so I was like, gosh, what am I going to do this year? I always like to have some kind of a theme or something that we focus on. And when I was putting this together, I went, wait, we can do the Haunted Mansion. That's what we're going to do. So we're saving that for the Halloween episode. So you have a little something to look forward to at the end of this next month. Just as the Disneyland Mansion has real spirits, this one does as well. For some reason, this is a favorite spot for family members to dump ashes of their deceased loved ones. And as we said in the Haunted Disneyland episode, this is not a good idea for a number of reasons. This is illegal and unhealthy. The ride will be stopped and shut down for cleanup, and your loved one is going to get vacuumed up and thrown away. So you probably don't want that to happen. You are also going to be permanently banned from the park. So just keep the ashes with you at home or spread them somewhere else. Disney is not a good place for that. Although I do adore the meme that we see every so often in the Spooktacular crew where somebody's talking about, I asked my family members to spread my remains around the Disney parks and I was not cremated or something like that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) This may be why we have some spirits here. Or maybe they just had planned to spend the afterlife here. You know, we wouldn't mind hanging out there occasionally in our afterlife. I'd be thrilled. A legend claims that the original spell book in the seance room was a real tome of witchcraft from the 14th century. Cast members claim they have trouble keeping it upright and that it occasionally disappears. Hmm. Disneyland's Haunted Mansion has a little boy ghost and so does the Magic Kingdom's mansion. A photo made it up on Twitter in 2004 that showed a boy peeking his head out of a doom buggy. The person who took the picture said, As you'll see in the photo after clicking the link, it appears as though a child is peeking his head out of the doom buggy and looking directly at me. Not only was he not there when I took the pic, there wasn't a child of his age within 20 people in front of me in line. And as you can see, he's only a few doom buggies in front of me. Not only that, what's he doing looking at me? There is no flash and no visible light coming from me. It's all infrared and invisible to the naked eye. Yeah, that would be kind of creepy if all of a sudden you have somebody who's in the doom buggies in front of you just turning around and looking back. The most seen spirit on the ride is the man with the cane. The first time he was ever encountered was on a particularly slow night. There were few people boarding the doom buggies at the loading station. The empty doom buggies come through from the unloading station And on this particular night, a cast member saw a man with a cane sitting in one of the doom buggies as it came through. The cast member was shocked and told the man that he should have gotten out of the doom buggy at the unloading station. The man gave no indication that he heard the worker and he continued to sit and went back into the ride. The cast member called his fellow worker at the unload station and told him to watch for a man with a cane and make sure that he got off the ride this time. The other cast member said he would take care of it and then he proceeded to wait and wait and wait. And the man with the cane never showed up. The ride was checked after this to make sure he had not gotten out of the doom buggy, and they found no one on the ride wandering around or anything like that. We couldn't find any information on security cameras and what they picked up, because I would imagine if this guy was on the ride, they would have picked him up somewhere along the line. He has been spotted multiple times through the years, and people think he was a pilot who crashed into Bay Lake before the park was built. We watched a video on YouTube featuring Chris Starr from the Travel Channel, and she did some ghost hunting at the Magic Kingdom, which, Kelly, you and I had never thought about doing that. I know, and now I'm looking forward to it. And now we're like, (laughs) oh, why couldn't we take an EMF in there with us and get our Spirit Box app on the phone going? She was sitting next to a bush outside the Haunted Mansion where a cast member had told her some ashes had been dumped one time. And obviously we know there's dirt out there. If you clean up those ashes, you're not going to get them all. So she set up a mail meter and used a spirit box app on her phone called Necrophonic. And I went, hey, we heard about that before. That's the one that Cedric told us about. We sure did. So we're like, I know it's a $10 app, but maybe we should go ahead and load it up since a couple of these people that we trust with uh, ghost hunting are using that. Plus, it's something that you could take into the parks with you and not have to worry about people looking at you weird or whatever. The cool thing about this video is that they must have paid for one of the after hour kind of party things, you know, when you do the Halloween thing or Christmas. 
And they used to have other ones like the Pirate and Princess Party and stuff. And you're in there with very few people. So there wasn't a whole lot of people there. So there wasn't a lot of background noise and that kind of thing. She asked how many ghosts were there. And it said 10. And Kelly, that number came up two more times when asked how many people's ashes had been spread there. It's one thing if you're getting all these different numbers, but when you get 10 to come up three times. Yeah, lends a little bit more credence. Yeah, it makes you go, huh, either this necrophonic only knows the number 10 or (laughs) maybe that's how many people have been spread here. Right. There were definitely children's voices coming through, particularly laughter, which is interesting because on a spirit box, usually you're just getting words like them saying a word or not. So when you're hearing children laughing coming through the spirit box... That's a bit unusual. It sounds pretty creepy, too. And the melometer indicated temperature changes, and it was bopping around a lot. It was like they would get something to come through the spirit box, and all of a sudden the temperature would drop on their thing, and the EMF went off. Her camera also turned itself off. Chris asked a spirit to touch the melometer, and it started going off like crazy right after that. She asked if they were happy there, and a voice said, I'm excited. Well, very cool. So hopefully they seem to be having a good time there. I have a link to that video that I'm talking about up in our show notes for this episode. Perfect. We love visiting the Walt Disney World property. It's always a good time. We never realized that it might be a good place to do a little ghost hunting. Is Walt Disney World haunted? That That is for for you to to decide. decide. Well, Kelly, we don't have to say we need to go visit this place because we visit it all the time. (laughs) We have annual passes, so we'll have to (laughs) ghost hunt there sometime. Definitely. How about that? And you guys, if you're ever in town, let us know. And uh, every so often we try to meet up with people there if we can. Yep. Lots of fun. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you have something that you would like to share with us, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We got a comment from Drew Betts over on YouTube under our Stickney House episode. And he writes, my paternal great aunt Florence Drury was a granddaughter of George and Sylvia Stickney. Back in the late 60s, Aunt Florence gave my mom and dad an old high boy chest of drawers from that house, which my mom still has today. We are either going to try to keep it in the family or donate it back to the Stickney House Foundation. I grew up with that chest of drawers in my bedroom, and when I was little, it always made me feel a bit uncomfortable, and I was kind of scared of it. I really didn't like it being in my room, but there was no place else for it. So I don't know if he was picking up something on it. Cheryl McReynolds sent us an email and she said, Hey guys, have been going backward on listening to episodes to get caught up. Happened on to the ghost town of Bannock, episode 383. The This Month in History was fabulous. Brought back great memories. That's what we were talking about, tying a yellow ribbon around an old oh, oak tree. Yeah. I tied a yellow ribbon around a tree in my front yard when my son deployed to Iraq in 2009. I crossed an item off my bucket list when my husband and myself, along with our good friends, flew to Las Vegas to see Cher. Oh, that'd be cool to see her in concert. If I could turn back time. Oh, boy. That's my share. (laughs) On our flight was Tony Orlando and his family. On departing the plane, I swallowed my nerves and approached him in the airport. I asked if I might speak with him. He replied, sure. And I proceeded to tell him that my son was a Marine and waiting for call to leave for Iraq. And I tied a yellow ribbon awaiting his return. I stated his song was a theme song for so many families and that we appreciated a way to show support. He thanked me for my son's service and to stay strong. He then looked to my husband and asked him if he could kiss my cheek and give me a hug. My husband agreed and my feet did not touch the ground for the rest of the day. Oh, and that's so chivalrous to ask. I know. While waiting for our flight to return home, I got the call from my son that his company was on their way to the airport to deploy to Iraq. I told him about my encounter and he said, it's going to be okay, mom. Tony said so. Oh, so I thought that was very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Cheryl. Then Jules Slosher, who has helped us with so many things here with our research and everything, wrote and said, just listen to the Jackson Square episode, and it was fabulous as usual. I'm so glad you covered Jackson Square. My husband Peyton and I visited the square on a whim when we vacationed in Biloxi. It was raining, and we spontaneously decided to have supper in New Orleans. I had never been to New Orleans. It was probably the dumbest parent decision we ever made due to it being 4th of July weekend. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we dined at Muriel's, and it was to die for, pun intended. Peyton loved the inside bistro area close to the bar. We loved the white chocolate bread pudding with rum sauce and pralines. Oh, my God. That, that sounds, sounds pretty yummy. delightful. That was pretty much all we got to do while there. We were trying to hurry back through the square to our car before things got wilder than they already were. We were a little irritated by that point. 
Hubby was in soldier mode due to Peyton being with us. I, the running with scissors mom, constantly felt the need to physically hang on to my irritated toddler who couldn't ride in the carriage or earn some Mardi Gras beats. (laughs) (laughs) While rushing to the car, I got that physical feeling you get when you feel someone very close behind you. All of a sudden, husband stops to wait on traffic before crossing the street. He was in front and Peyton was in between us in a line fashion. I was walking fast to put some distance in between me and whoever was behind me, but they kept up. As soon as John stopped across the street to our car, I braced myself for impact, knowing that I was about to collide with that person. Nothing happened. I quickly turned around to get ready to apologize, only to realize that nobody was within radius of bumping into me. It hit me a minute later where I was, one of the most haunted places in the country. I shook the feeling off and went on to the car. John thinks I'm crazy, so I gave up sharing my experiences years ago. LOL. I wish I could have seen more of the area, but the Jackson Square episode helped me figure out where to visit next time after I eat at Muriel's. I also had a small encounter while eating at a restaurant in Gulfport while John took Peyton to the restroom. Thank goodness other diners noticed one light above my table go dim, but not completely out, and then it grew brighter again, and it repeated it. Interesting. On the last episode, we shared an email about Haint Blue. We got another email about this. This is from Cindy. Said, hi, Diane and Kelly. I just finished listening to the early release of the Butterworth Building episode. And at the end, you were talking about some listener mail and you mentioned the haint blue painted on the ceilings to repel mosquitoes. My dad's family came from the Bohemia region of the Czech Republic and brought with them a lot of traditions and superstitions. One of them was painting the foundation of the house a medium colored blue. And this was to keep the devil from coming into the house. Oh, dad always talked about that, even insisting the walls in our basement all be the same blue color to keep the devil out but I was never really sure it was really a tradition. But in looking into it a few times over the years, it does seem to be a tradition in a lot of the older areas to paint a blue stripe around the house. Isn't that weird? Very unique. A few sources I found mentioned that it was to confuse the devil to keep him out of the house. Like he would see the blue and think it was the sky so he wouldn't rise up in that area. Sounds a lot like the idea of blue ceilings to confuse the mosquitoes and spiders, leaving them to think the ceiling was the sky. In our house, my dad had painted the ceiling of the front porch that same blue color, and I always asked him why. He would just respond, that's just the color for the porch. Trust me, it makes sense. He passed away a few years ago, so I can't ask him more about it, but I am more curious. I grew up in southwestern Michigan, so probably not a lot of influence from the south, but now I'm wondering just which old country that idea came from. Possibly a few. Uh, I'm thinking, and what's interesting is when you have it coming from a lot of the different old countries, you've got to wonder if there's really something to it. Because these people might not necessarily have been communicating with each other. Exactly. Well, kind of similar to you have haunting experiences with all different generations, whether it be from Native Americans describing the same type of situation to settlers, what have you. It just it morphs, but they're still generally the same thing that they're speaking about. Mm-hmm. There's something behind it. And then Sarah is the one who emailed us a little while ago and she was talking about how her grandmother had spilled the vase and there was no water anywhere, right. that kind of thing. So anyway, her grandmother's haunting her house. So she wrote us and said, I'm still trying to catch up on your podcast and just listen to episode 332 about the spirits of the Spanish flu. My grandmother's, the one who haunts her house, her uncle died of the flu on a troop ship headed to Europe during World War I. He, along with others, were buried at sea. Have you looked into any ships from this time period? I always wondered if the service members who, like my great-great-uncle, stuck around the ships due to a lack of proper burials. And I hadn't really thought about people being buried at sea, and that's why they might be haunting some of these battleships. But yes, we have covered, I was like, I don't know, we've covered a lot of battleships. I don't know which ones were particular to World War One, World War Two, before that. But uh, we do have several of them. I know when we did the, I think there was a bunch of ships that are in Maryland somewhere <laughs> that we did. And I know at least one of those was a World War One. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome back into the cemetery, Victoria Howard. We're going to be putting you in a garden crypt. Thank you so much for supporting us, Victoria. Sweet dreams.
Test, test, test. Scrappy-doo test. This book would revolutionize American cooking through a number of topics like sanitation techniques, nutrition, and using precise measurements, which was a novel culinary concept at the time. Can you imagine measuring everything out is a novel idea? That's pretty much the only way I can cook. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I get too heavy-handed with the spices. A grand opening special ran on NBC at the end of the month and had 52 million people turn, 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 turn into the show. If they turned into it with what, a vehicle (laughs) crashed right into it. (laughs) Ding dong. This park was anchored by a giant geodesic spear. Spear. We're going to spear spear it. it. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Lordy, Lordy. This park was anchored by a giant, giant? I can't even You're see having a hard time saying those three hell? words together. Giant geodesic sphere. Giant geodesic sphere. I can do it. The park will literally be transformed into something fairly new on the furcher, furcher, uh, on the furcher world side. Once upon a time, there was a skyway that took guests from Fantasyland to Tomorrowland aboard colorful skyway, skyway scars. Skyway scars. <laughs> I want to take the Skyway sky. <laughs> Kelly, I love it. People can't see the visual of us when we're recording, but you're kind of like a robot when they're having a problem and they like tilt their head to the side or look to the side when they're having trouble like speaking, like, um, uh, you know, they're malfunctioning. Why? Because my hat's down and I'm trying no. to save up my glasses. <laughs> no, but every time you're like saying, you say a word wrong or say a sentence wrong, you like, Jerk oh. your head to the side and then you say <laughs> it again really? and you've done it several times. So I'm like, she's like a computer that's going, uh, malfunctioning. <laughs> reset, reset, reset. <laughs> there is also a fireman's brigade, brigade, brigade. It's a brigade. I can never say brigade right. Or cavalry. 